Get your Bibles, if you would, go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is where we are at in our series called Live It, uh, looking at the, the life of Christ. And, uh, and today, we're going to be looking at the, um, the really going to go all the way to the end of chapter 8. And if you're in our Bible studies, um, in your small groups, and you've been doing your Bible study, you're going to notice that I'm going to get ahead of where we are supposed to be, um, but you'll be okay. Take a deep breath. You'll be okay. Uh, the reason that is is because I want, I want to talk about the end of chapter 8, and the next week I'm going to get to, to chapter 9 talk about the transfiguration. I didn't want to lump those both together because I think it's really important to separate those out um, to be able to just talk about what they mean for us. So as, as we do that, um, you, you've probably been on a journey or you've gone somewhere, maybe vacation or a big trip you were looking forward to, or maybe to work, a special meeting, a uh, significant meeting, and, um, and you get there and you realize you've left something behind that was significant, something really important that you needed on that vacation or um, on a trip or, or something like that. Um, I, I, I have a friend named Tim, and years ago, uh, when I was working in the fish and tackle industry, every Memorial Day, we'd make a weekend trip and go camp and fish on the John Day River. Um, and we'd, we'd, we'd load a bunch of stuff and go up river for several miles and fish the, the narrows of that river for smallmouth bass. And the reason we did it then is because the fish were in a frenzy. You catch well over 100 fish over the weekend. It was just great fishing. And we were on this trip, and we're headed up there. We're all packed up, ready to go, and we're setting up our tents. We're getting uh, camp ready, and, and everyone's got their tent, and Tim's on the trip. And uh, we hear, the group hears uh, Tim uh, yell out, You've got to be kidding me. And, uh, and we walk over to where he's at, make sure he's okay. And he's got his tent all staked into the ground, but it's just flat because he's forgotten the, the tent poles. Uh, he's forgotten them back. I mean, you, there's no way to go back and get them because he's done boat ride and drive uh, three or four hours uh, back home. So he's like propping sticks up in this tent. It was not a very comfortable fishing trip for him. Um, and, and then six years later, we did another fishing trip. And by the way, since we're talking about fishing, have you seen this video? These guys fishing with hand grenades. By the way, here, just some instructions. If you ever do this, it's against the law, but if you ever do this, here's how you do it. You, you pull the pin, throw it far from the boat, and net the stunned and dead fish. These guys forgot step two. So here's a short little video here of, of what happens when you fish with hand grenades. Yeah. That has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to show that to you because... Okay, so back to the trip to Alaska. Six years ahead, we're, we're planning this trip to Alaska, and Tim's on this trip. And, um, and he's, some of you are still back there like, what is that? <laughs> let it go. Let it go. All right, let it go. Go Seahawks. Here we go. All right, moving on. <laughs> Whoa, wow. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Jesus. Oh, okay. Make sure you're there. Okay, good. Anyhow, six years later, we're going to Alaska, and we're all, we're, I mean, we're, we're like eight months in the planning. Uh, we're booking flying trips, and we're making sure we got waders and fishing rods and all that stuff. And we make the trip up there. We get in, in, into Anchorage, and we drive to where we're going to fish, and, and we're setting up camp. Um, and Tim's with us, and, uh, and, and we hear Tim say, you've got to be kidding me. And we walk over. His tent is set up, but as he's laying out his rods, he's realized he's packed all his rods, but he's not packed any fishing reels. 
And, and, uh, and so that, now he's got to go buy fishing reels, and his wife was not very happy about that. Um, and, and so you, you and I, have, I mean, it's easy to cherry pick on my friend Tim, but you and, I, you, and I, you and I have done that as well. You've been on a trip, you forgot something significant. You went on a ski trip, forgot skis. You went Christmas shopping, forgot your wallet. All, all that stuff, right? We've all done it. And as we look at Mark chapter 8, what we're going to see is that as we begin on this journey with Jesus, and specifically we're going to see this through the eyes of Peter, Peter is going to, he's going to have a revelation of who Jesus is. And, he's, and he's, he's got this idea of what it means to follow Jesus. But it's, it's, it doesn't fit the idea that Jesus has, what it means to follow him. And, and the struggle for you and I is oftentimes we can get on the journey with Jesus and forget something that's necessary, a necessity that if we leave it behind, it, it just, well, you're really not following him. And what I'm talking about is the cross. I want to talk to you about the cross. And as I'm done talking today, then we're going to celebrate communion together. And we're going to remember the cross. We're going to remember the life that was given to us through Jesus going to the cross. But today what we're going to do, before we do communion, what we're going to look at is Jesus' invitation for us to go with him to the cross. And this is where the clash comes for Peter. That does not fit his grid. And frankly, it does not fit the grid of many people who think they're following Jesus today. So I just want to walk through this story, explain to you as we go along, and talk about what it would, could and would mean to you and I today. So Mark chapter 8, I'm going to read just these the verses from uh, chapter 8, verse 27 to 31, uh, through 30 actually, and just talk our way through it. Mark 8, 27, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let me stop right there. Jesus is, is asking his disciples a question. Who do, who do people say? Who's, who do the crowds say that I am? And, uh, and the, the disciples are responding. And you get some of these other responses in the other Gospels. Uh, you're, you're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. You are, uh, you're Jeremiah. You're one of the significant prophets. People understand, Jesus, that there's something about you. And they're attaching significant names to you. But then Jesus does something significant. He pivots the question. He's been talking about the crowds. Now he pivots the question, but who do you say I am? And Peter responds by saying, well, you're the Messiah. And this is a very high moment for Jesus. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, we get some more details on Jesus' response. We'll put it up here on the screen. I'll read it. Jesus replied, this is after Peter says, you are the Messiah. Peter, Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. What Jesus is saying here is, look, Peter, I did not persuade you to believe this. I didn't talk you into this realization. This is a realization that can only come from my Father. Peter has had divine revelation. Uh, revelation means a revealing or a, an unveiling. There has been an unveiling of who Jesus is in Peter's mind. John chapter 6, John says, records the words of Jesus saying, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws them. Anytime a person recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, God is at work. 
So Jesus is thrilled. In fact, some of the other gospels say, then Jesus is going to say, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. I mean, Jesus is pretty excited and he's, he's excited because he's seeing the Father at work in his disciples. And, and, and then he, he continues. Actually, what he does, he makes a shift in his teaching. Up to this point, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. But when his disciples understand who he is, now he's going to shift a significant portion of his teaching to this talk of suffering in Jerusalem and dying and rising from the dead. Okay? So we'll pick up in verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Roller coaster day for Peter here, okay? High moment, you're, you're the Messiah. And Peter's got to be feeling pretty good. I mean, God's at work in his life. This is a significant moment. I recognize Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus got pretty excited. Then Jesus starts shifting his teaching to talk about suffering. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The religious leaders are going to persecute me. They're going to execute me, but I will rise on the third day. Now, Jesus is clearly and plainly, he's been talking in parables, but here he's just putting it out there. There's no parable here. Yet the, the disciples couldn't get it. And the reason they couldn't get it is because they were, in a sense, they were, they were, they were cultural captives. They were captives to a certain cultural belief about how God would do things. The understanding of the day for the Messiah was the Messiah would, would grow up among the people and not even know he was the Messiah. The prophet Elijah would come and anoint this person, and then they would know they were the Messiah. And then they would usher in a new political system, uh, this, this return of the Davidic kingdom, the glory days of Israel. That's how the Messiah comes. It's, it's glory. It's, it's unveiling. It's powerful. And yet here we have Jesus saying, fantastic, you know I'm the Messiah. So get this, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me. I'm going to rise on the third day. So what Peter does is, uh, the word picture here is he, he grabs him by the arm, pulls Jesus over the side of the path, and says to Jesus, that is, that is not going to happen. You're, you are not going to suffer and die. That, we're no, 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 no talk of suffering here. And Jesus, his response is, it's interesting, Mark says, he looked to his other disciples I think what's happening there is, hey, I all want you to hear this. This is really important. I'm about to verbally spank Peter, but I want you to understand this. So he, he, he turns to the disciples, and he says loud enough, get behind me, Satan. What in the world? We know it's bad, but what's it mean? You have in mind the things of men, and you, you are seeing life through, through human point of view, and not God's point of view. You have in mind the things of, of men and not the things of God. This is the essence of the satanic spirit. The essence of the satanic spirit is to elevate 
Our priorities over God's. Our concerns over his. Satan in the wilderness, remember, tempted Jesus and said, hey, just bow down, worship me, and you can have all the nations. You don't have to go to the cross. You can get it all. It's on sale. Just worship. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to worship. He's doing exactly, Peter is doing exactly what Satan did in the wilderness. Hey, none of us talk about going to Jerusalem and dying. That, that, we're, not, we're not doing that. But Jesus says, no, no, Peter, get behind me. He said, fall in line, Peter. And you, you really need to understand this. Peter has had a moment of unveiling. He's raised his hand in church and said, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He's pounded a white ribbon on the cross. We got a rose from him on the platform. Not literally, but he got a rose from the platform. We all, yay, Peter gave his life to Christ. But then you got Jesus saying to him, now get behind me. You, what, what, what are you talking about? Because Jesus is going is to go to this next section. He's going to say, hey, I'm, it's great that you understand who I am, but you need to know what it means to follow me. And Jesus is going to clearly lay out what it looks like to follow him as a disciple. And we can't miss this. So, Verse 34, he's, he's called the disciples close. He's verbally spanked Peter. Then he calls the crowd to join his disciples and says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Peter, I'm thrilled you recognize me, but we are going to the cross, and if you want to be my disciple, here's what you need to know. These things you cannot forget. These are crucial, essential to following me. And Jesus is going to lay it out really clearly. I'm going to put these on the screen so you don't miss them. Because there's these conditions. There's these steps of being a disciple. First one is simply this, is to turn from your selfish ways. Some of your Bibles say, deny yourselves. Well, what, what, he, what he's saying there is, before you encountered Christ, you had these self-centered views of you. Everything was about you. You're the center of the universe. And our favorite words are me and I. You know, we, we process through what benefits us. But when we encounter Christ, when we say we're going to follow him, what we're doing is leaving that old life behind and pursuing a new life. We're, we're turning away from self-centeredness and now embracing an other-centeredness view of living as well as a Christ-centered view of living. So we turn from our selfish ways. Uh, my, my friend, Sundar Christian, really clears this up for us because sometimes we think, well, that means i got to hate myself. Like, I don't matter anymore. And that's not what, what Jesus is saying here. Sunder says this. He says, to, to deny ourselves is not to deny who Jesus has created us to be. It is a death to self-centeredness where we clamor for attention. It's a death to a preoccupation with self. Now, I'm just going to leave it up here for a second because denying ourselves is not like, okay, I've got to be... I gotta be really somber and unhappy for the rest of my life because I'm following Jesus. No, that's not what he's saying. Or I've gotta deny who I've been created to be. I've gotta deny my passion for the arts or my, my love for reading or, or writing or whatever it might be. 
That's not what he's saying. He's gifted you and talented you on purpose. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For, but by grace, you've been saved, right? And verse 10 says, but you are God's workmanship, prepared in advance for good works. So he's created you for a purpose on purpose. But the purpose is not to serve self. C.S. Lewis, this is a longer quote. I'm going to read through it fairly slowly, slowly here. But I want you to get this because Lewis begins to describe for us the natural life or the self-life. Lewis writes, the natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired. It desires to take advantage of others and exploit the universe. It especially wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. It is afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. In a sense, it is quite right. Our natural sense knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed, and it's ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid this. That's what's, that is the war that wages with, within us. Paul writes about this in some of his other epistles. This, this battle between the, the, the natural self and the spiritual part of us that's come alive. And Jesus is saying, hey, fantastic you raised your hand in church. Great you pounded the white ribbon on the cross. But here's what you need to know. You are on a journey now, and it begins by denying yourself, turning from your selfish ways. Which we should pause here and ask a reflective question. This could be a question you could, you could uh, process in a small group or, or on your own, your own private worship time. The question is this. If someone were to have full access to observe my life, whose priorities, Jesus or mine, would they say I live by? If someone knew all your thoughts, scary thought, but if someone you knew knew everything you were thinking, would they come to the conclusion that you are self-centered or you're turning from your selfish ways? Or if someone had full access to your calendar, to how you spend your time, or to how you spend your money, what would the spending of time and money tell people about who you are? Self-centered or someone who's turned from their selfish ways? Just a great question to process. And you know, we, we have varying degrees of success on this. So if you find yourself in it, I'm, I'm really self-centered, you know, don't worry, you're not, you're not disqualified. It's this process of being transformed. So we, we want to be on this journey. So that's condition number one. Here's condition number two that Jesus brings up. He says, take up your cross. Now for you and I, taking up your cross is, is something that's quite misunderstood. You, you may have heard people say that, you know, I got a bum knee, and, and I, you know, but boy, you know, that's just my cross I got to bear. Well, that, that's not the cross, that's just a bum knee, okay? That, that's not what Jesus is talking about. And frankly, the cross is something that's a sacred object, a sacred symbol to us that we, we sing songs about, or we, you know, we hang them on our walls, or on, on chains, or pendants, or their earrings, or, you know, or whatever, because we, we understand the significance of the cross, and it's okay to do those things. But in these days, in, in the ears of the first century Jew, who's hearing Jesus say, hey, here's the deal, you want to follow me? Let's get three things straight here. First, number one, turn from your selfish ways. Point number two, take up your cross. 
And they would have like sucked in air through their teeth. Like, what? Because the cross was a symbol of fear and intimidation. The cross would have given them nightmares. 6 AD, Jerusalem, there's a rebellion. Rome squashes it. They capture 2,000 rebels. And then they take these 2,000 rebels and they crucify them on the main street going into Jerusalem. 2,000 crosses, 2,000 rebels crucified, and you're going in and out of Jerusalem and everyone sees it because it has a message that says, if you rebel against Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. In Rome itself, there was a road that was lined with 6,000 crosses that when wars are won, they would just bring in the, 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 the people they, they conquered and they would crucify them for the entire city to see. The cross was a fearful, intimidating symbol that meant death and excruciating death. We sing songs. Now, a little bit later, we're going to sing, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And we'll, we'll sing, Oh, the Wonderful Cross. To give you some perspective, try singing, Oh, the Wonderful Electric Chair. Because that's, that's what we're singing. Or instead of at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, at the firing squad where I first saw the light. Can you, can you feel the tension? Imagine walking and never knowing anything and hearing about Jesus or about the cross and hearing them, you're like, yay, the electric chair. We love the electric chair. Like, that is weird. Jesus is saying, take up your cross. And that's weird. Take up your cross and follow me. To take up your cross is to make a statement of allegiance to Christ. That means that any time my allegiance to Christ and the culture in which I live clash, I will choose Jesus Christ even though it means suffering. So what it means is, if you're a high school student and you're in high school and you're mocked and ridiculed for being a, a, a Christian, that's taking up your cross. Assuming you stay with Christ. I mean, that's in a small way. In, in, in Mark chapter 8, he's writing to a church in Rome. Friends, this passage right here would have been difficult to read in the church. Some of them are losing their lives. Some of them are losing their property, their jobs, their homes. And Jesus is saying, he's saying, if you want to follow me, keep carrying that cross. Your association with Jesus that clashes with culture, that brings you pain and suffering, that is taking up your cross. It's not a bum shoulder. It's not a bum knee. It's anything that brings pain because you're associated with Christ. So what Jesus is doing here, he's inviting, he's inviting us to join him on a death march. Remember World War II, the Bataan Death March? 72,000 soldiers surrendered to Japan. They marched 63 miles in three days. 20,000 of them die. It was a death march brutal death march and what jesus is saying you want to follow me peter it's bigger than recognizing who i am turn from your selfish ways and join the death march we're going to jerusalem i'm going to die and your association with me is also going to bring you pain cheery huh here's step number three well actually can we can we go to that question sorry eli here's a question for you to, uh, to process can I voluntarily embrace the suffering that will come from my association with Jesus? Again, another great question to process individually or in a small group. Can I voluntarily embrace the suffering that will come? And friends, it will come. 
In this world, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus says. To varying degrees, right now in our world, there are Christians who are suffering because of their association with Jesus. Is that something I'm willing to commit to? All right, condition number three. Here's what Jesus says. To follow Jesus is to embrace this new way of life. It's a new way of living. If I'm going to follow Jesus, it means turning from my selfish ways, it's taking up my cross, and it's a new way of life. Jesus becomes Lord. He becomes master. I go where he goes. He calls the shots. He directs my paths. And there's something within us. The natural self will war against this. Do you remember the name Timothy McVeigh? The, the terrorist who blew up this building in Oklahoma City. McVeigh was convicted, and just before he was executed, he was given a chance to, to give some final thoughts. And this, these were his final thoughts. He read a poem. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not cried nor winced aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. Can you smell the pride? Or as another poet put it, Billy Joel, I don't need you to go, I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't want you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Friends, the journey of discipleship is not just recognizing who Jesus is. It's turning from our selfish ways, joining the death march, by, death march by taking up our cross and making a way of life where Jesus is master. And Jesus will say, if you try and save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. And when the Father returns with his holy angels, for anyone who's ashamed of him on earth, he himself will be ashamed of them. So there's a little question for us to, to process here again. So who's the captain of your soul? Who's calling the shots? Is it you? Or is Jesus Lord? Now, this is pretty heavy stuff. This is like, man, there's a cost to this. There's a price to this. I gotta turn from my selfish ways, take up my cross and follow him, and this is a new pattern for my life. And, um, and, and by the way, taking up your cross, again, it's that allegiance to Jesus that clashes with the culture. It doesn't mean we become obnoxious Christians so that we can clash with culture. That's not, that's not taking up your cross. That's just picking a fight. It's living the Christ life in such a way that it, it does clash with culture. And it's difficult, and it's heavy, and it's hard. But like anything... You need to know if it's worth it. 
which is why Jesus in chapter 9, verse 1, I'll just read this one verse. I was wondering, why is this verse here? Jesus says, he went on to say, I tell you the truth, someone, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Here's what Jesus is doing. I've just laid out all this heavy stuff, but I want to give you a glimpse of glory so that you can decide if it's worth it. I'm going to give you a glimpse of glory. Before the service last night, 5 o'clock, we were in the back in the green room, and Candy, who's helping us with worship this weekend, said that her kids this past week went through this uh, thing with you know, no screen time, no phones, no TV, uh, no movies, nothing like that. And if they did that all week, they'd get a reward. This was their reward. On Friday night, they get to, they get to do an overnighter sleep in the library. Now, for me, I would have counted the cost. No movies, no phone, no TV, and if the reward is an overnighter in the library, I'm out. I'm just going to tell you. I get nothing wrong with libraries. We, we need them. That's, that's great. But I, I would count. I'm, I don't get, that's my reward? The suffering is not worth the reward, right, in my opinion. For you, you might just love to sleep in the library. God bless you. But for me, it was, it was not, it's not worth it because I'm counting the cost, Right? You've done this. I mean, in high school, we, we were part of track team, and uh, um, and you could choose events. And I, you know, I didn't want to do the sprinting thing because I, I'm not fast that way. So I thought if I can't win a sprint, and maybe I can win a long distance uh, race. So I signed up to participate in the 5,000 meters. Now, I just want, I want you to know, I hate running. I mean, look at me. I hate running. Right? I do not like to run. I didn't like to run in high school, but I signed up for the 5,000 meters because I had this goal in mind. The goal was to win the race, but not just win the race. I wanted to break the school record. So I trained. Every day I ran miles, and I hated it. It was painful. And, uh, and I went through months of training for the 5,000 meter. All be, not because I loved running, not because I, I, I enjoyed the pain. No, because in my mind, I had a picture of being on that platform and taking first place and breaking the school record. I'm not saying the motives are pure. I'm just, that's just what drove me, right? So I, I ran the race. I did win the race, and I did set the school record, but don't be too impressed. It's a school of 120 kids, okay? <laughs> Small school. But I went through all that suffering because I thought the end it would be worthwhile. That is what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Some of you will not die until you see the kingdom of God come in power. And you'll see how worth it it is. As we prepare for communion, I just want to give you a glimpse of glory. Through the eyes, through the imagination of C.S. Lewis. In his, his Narnia series, in his book, The Last Battle, he just pens some words that, if you allowed your imagination to sort of go with it, will give you perhaps a picture to where you could decide for yourself, is the end worthwhile? Listen to these words. Again, you may want to close your eyes as I read, or you can keep your eyes open, but just picture the scene. Lewis writes, Then I looked about me and saw the sky and the wide lands and smelled the sweetness. And I said, By the gods, this is a pleasant place. And I began to journey into the strange country and to seek him. So I went over much grass and many flowers and among all kinds of wholesome and delectable trees till 
Lo, in a narrow place between two rocks there came to meet me a great lion. The speed of him was like the ostrich, and his size was an elephant's. His hair was like pure gold that is liquid in the furnace. He was more terrible than the flaming mountains of Lagor, and in beauty he surpassed all that is in the world, even as the rose in bloom surpasses the dust of the desert. And this is the marvel of marvels, that he called me beloved, me who am but as a dog. The difference between old Narnia and the new Narnia is this. The new one is a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone else was thinking. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason we love the old Narnia is that it looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. And then Aslan appears to the children. There was a railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that it cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, the more convinced we are of the glory, the more willing we will be to suffer in the pursuit of it. Our greatest obstacle is to take, to take up Jesus' challenge and to take up the cross has little to do with his difficulty. Our greatest challenge is us wondering, will it be worthwhile in the end? And in the end, we don't just get heaven, as marvelous as that is. We see Jesus. Jesus.